If we please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 10. We're looking at just one single verse today, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 958, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. And today we're really doing kind of an encore sermon, because I finished up this last section that we were looking at last week, looking at verse, uh, chapters 8 through 10. Uh, so before doing a, going on to the new topic in chapter 11, uh, I just wanted to do one more sermon, because this one verse, I think, is important. This one verse has universal application beyond the immediate context that we looked at last week. And if you remember, we did this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at verse 13. I preached a sermon uh, in the context, and in the following week, I preached a sermon on that one verse, verse 13, looking at the universal application that's beyond the context, beyond really the book of of 1 Corinthians. So that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at this one verse. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the Lord. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do all want to do everything we do to glorify you. But we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that I will glorify you in this sermon, but I need your Holy Spirit to speak through me, to give me your words. In each one of us, as we are sitting here, we want to glorify you as we are hearing the sermon preached. And Father, we pray for your Spirit to open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you. And Father, as we have an encounter with you, that we will be changed. Father, I pray that each one of us will leave here different. Each one of us will leave here loving you more, more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, we are a doing people. And what I mean by this is each one of us, we put a lot of focus, we put a a huge emphasis on what we do, on what we accomplish. Now, this could be what we do vocationally, you know, uh, as a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor or a school teacher. But it's, it's broader than this. It also includes what we do for our hobbies, what we do for recreation, what we do for service, what we do as religious activities, what we do when we travel, all the things we accomplish. And I think this is why one of the biggest idols that we have in our society is busyness. I mean, think about it. If you talk to anyone, you, you meet someone, you ask them how they're doing, they'll say, man, I am so busy. And I think busy is both a complaint and a brag. I'm so busy because I do so much. And again, this is one of the reasons why the fourth commandment, what we're doing now, keep holy the Sabbath, why this is so difficult for us. We have difficulty resting. We have difficulty not doing. And Why are we like this? Why do we put so much emphasis on what we do? Well, first of all, I don't think our our doing focus is a bad thing. God created us this way. God is a doing God, and, and, and God is a God of action. God is a God of work, a God of accomplishment, and we are, are made in his image. We reflect this aspect of God. See, rocks and hills and, and fields and, and streams and trees, they just are. They don't do, but we, we are doing creatures. We are working creatures. And before the fall, man was created to work. God gave Adam the task of working, of of keeping the garden. And before the fall, work was joyous. It was productive. It was fulfilling. It was invigorating. 
And after the fall, we still work. We still need to work. We still need to do. But instead of being productive, our work is often futile. It's often so much effort is needed for so little result. Instead of being joyful, our work is laborious. It's, it's monotonous. Instead of being fulfilling, it's frustrating, it's discouraging, it's draining. And this one verse that we're looking at today, this verse has incredible power. And I don't think it's an overstatement. And you may think I'm crazy, but hear me out. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this one verse, if we truly embrace it, if we truly apply it, it actually has the power to undo the effects of the fall in our work. That's what I said. It actually has the power to undo the effects of the fall in our work. And this is why I didn't want to just race through it. This is why I wanted to stop. I wanted to savor this verse. This verse can undo the effects of the fall on our work. And I know you may be skeptical. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Jesus at his first coming, his death and his, his resurrection, broke the power of sin and death caused by our sin, caused by the fall. And Jesus ushered in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. John the Baptist prepared the way with the words. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 3, 2. And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, which we heard a part of it, Nathan just read, it describes the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. He describes the qualities found in its citizens, those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. See, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, both terms are used interchangeably. God inaugurated this kingdom in two stages. See, there is the spiritual stage, and that came with Jesus' first coming and was announced by John the Baptist and described in, by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And then there is the final consummation. This is the final consummation of this kingdom is both spiritual and it is physical. And this will come in the future when Christ returns. See, we're all born into this world. We're born into this world under the dominion of sin, under the curse of the fall. And we face the curse both in a physical as well as a spiritual death. But when we're born again, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, there is, there, there is nothing that we can do that makes this happen. It's solely by God's grace. But when we are, are regenerated, God then grants us a supernatural faith to trust in Christ, to believe the promises of the gospel. And then God looks at that faith, faith that he actually gave us. He supernaturally gave us, and he credits that faith to us as righteousness. He justifies us by this faith, faith that he gives us. And this means what, that God declares a sinner that has faith not guilty of that sin in his sight. And again, this is based solely on grace. It's based solely on the merit of Christ, nothing that the sinner has done. And when this regeneration and when this justification takes place, our citizenship is transferred. It's transferred. We go from being citizens of the kingdom of this world, this, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of bondage to sin and the devil. We go to become kingdom uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of freedom in Christ. And this new citizenship, this is, this is real. This is a present reality at this very moment for each one of us. The kingdom of heaven is real and present reality in this world at this very moment. But this kingdom at this moment is only spiritual. It's not yet spiritual and physical. But my friends, it will be. One day it will be. When Christ returns, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of death will be no more. 
They will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal destruction. And the kingdom of heaven will be both spiritual and physical and eternal. And Jesus, by his miracles, by his healings, by his raising the dead, what he does is he gives us a glimpse, a glimpse of this final consummation. Jesus' miracles really were an undoing of the effects of the fall. They ushered in the kingdom of heaven. And as Christians, as Christians, we now live in a hybrid time. See, spiritually, we are citizens of heaven, where the effects of the fall have been fully undone. Spiritually, we have our eyes have been opened to God's truth. We're no longer under Satan's deception. We are no longer under Satan's captivity. Spiritually, we are free citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But physically, physically, we are very much part of this fallen world. And we suffer its effects, as we heard in our prayer requests just this morning. And what this verse does, and why this verse is so powerful, is it allows us to transform our thinking, our thinking about work, our thinking about what we do, from thinking about it from the perspective of the kingdom of this world, the fallen kingdom, and to think about it from the perspective of the kingdom of heaven. That's the power of this verse. And in doing this, in making this shift in our thinking, our work can become closer to what God originally intended it to be prior to the fall. And this verse will allow our work to regain much of the meaning, much of the joy, much of the productivity lost in the fall. And by understanding and applying the command of this verse to do all for the glory of God, what we will do is we'll experience an immediate and a radical transformation in the value and in the productivity of our work, in the joy that we experience in doing our work and in the ultimate significance and the impact that we find from our work. And by work, I'm not, again, I'm not just talking about our vocational work. I'm talking about every single thing that we do. This verse says, do all for the glory of God. So the scope of this command and, and the scope of the transformation is all that we do. Again, if we can truly get our minds around this verse, the practical, the, the tangible results we experience every day would be nothing short of revolutionary. So again, let's look at this command, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, the first part of this, whether you eat or drink, this has to do with the context of this verse in the chapter, talking about consuming food or drink that may have at one time been involved in pagan idolatry. And I discussed this in detail in the last sermon, so we're not really going to address this part this first part today, what I want to look at today is the focus of the general command. The second part, it says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, again, let's start off looking at the scope of this command. What is the scope of this command? It's whatever you do. It's all that you do. It includes every single thing that we do. Just think about that for a second. Everything we do. It's not just every religious thing we do. It's, it's not saying pray to the glory of God, sing to the glory of God, go to church to the glory of God. It's much broader. It includes everything. We are to pray to the glory of God, of course. We are to engage in our vocational work to the glory of God. We are to engage in our hobbies to the glory of God. We are to brush our teeth to the glory of God. We are to change diapers to the glory of God. We are to do our taxes to the glory of God. 
Some people I was talking about doing taxes. Some people, <laughs> that's not something we enjoy doing. But even that we're to do to the glory of God. And at first, this, this may seem absurd. It may seem even impossible. It may seem daunting. It, it seems like an incredibly suffocating burden of which we can never escape. You mean I have to sleep to the glory of God? I have to relax to the glory of God? I have to watch TV to the glory of God? Yes. Yes. And yes, this seems daunting. But the reality is, it's, it's a glorious privilege. And what it does is it infuses in even the most mundane task with a nobility, with an honor. I had, when I was in middle school, the the father of one of my classmates was a World War II veteran. And to my knowledge, this man didn't fight any great battles. He wasn't special forces. He wasn't a commander. What he did is he simply drove a Jeep. But he drove a Jeep for General Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander. That's who he drove a Jeep for. And he came and he spoke to our class. And he told us firsthand of General Eisenhower's reaction as they drove to liberate the death camps, the Nazi concentration camps. And he told us about Eisenhower weeping when they saw the horrors of these camps. My friends, the mundane task of driving a Jeep has incredible honor, incredible nobility to it. Well, we're going to talk about three specific aspects of our work, aspects that I think will radically transformed, be radically transformed by this shift in perspective from viewing our work as citizens of the, the kingdom of this world to citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the three aspects that we're going to look at is the value of our work, the joy that we find in our work, and the significance of our work. So the value of our work, the joy of our work, and the significance of our work. But before we look at these things, we, what I want to do is I want to ask the question, what does this actually mean? Do all to the glory of God. If, we're going to, if we have to do all to the glory of God, we have to understand what it even means the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? Well, to put it as simply as I can, the glory of God is the splendor. It is the magnificence. It is the absolute perfection and beauty of God's character. God, glory is, is basically the natural overflow of God's holy nature. Glory is to God like sunlight is to the sun. It's the natural expression of who God is. And when we glorify God, we are reflecting. We are celebrating this splendor. We are displaying God to the world. We are making God known. And when we do all for the glory of God, we are saying that every single thing that we do is to be done with the explicit goal of making God look good, of showing God's magnificence, of showing God's splendor, of displaying God's holy nature to the world. One of my favorite verses is Romans 11.36, which says, For from him, from God, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And this verse tells us that God is the source of all things from him. God sustains all things through him. And God is the ultimate purpose of all things to him. To God be the glory forever. And God's glory is the highest good. It's the, it's the noblest purpose. But not just of us. For the entire creation, all creation reflects God's glory. When birds sing, they sing to the glory of God. When flowers bud, they bud to the glory of God. Even when tornadoes roar, they display the awesome power of God to the glory of God. All creation glorifies God. But we as humans are different. Not only do we 
involuntarily reflect God's glory, which we do, just like the creation. But we as humans also have the capacity to voluntarily celebrate God's glory. And this, my friends, is a uniquely human activity, which, we, which is shown in our, in our Westminster Catechism question that we read earlier. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is our purpose. This is the purpose for all creation, to glorify God. And this is the purpose for which we as human beings, we were actually created. We were created to glorify God. And any, any lesser goal, really any lesser goal, will only lead us to despair, will lead us to vanity. And this is what we saw. We, we read a, a large chapter, a large portion of Ecclesiastes. But this is what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. See, the book of Ecclesiastes is an attempt to find meaning and satisfaction under the sun. And what that means under the sun is apart from God, in this world only. And the conclusion is that all attempts, all attempts to find meaning apart from God are chasing after the wind. Is vanity, is useless. Ecclesiastes was written by a man who was on the top, a man who had everything. From a human perspective, achieved everything that this world has to offer. Many believe that this author of Ecclesiastes was Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest man ever to live. Probably the richest, most powerful king at the time. And certainly from a human perspective, the most powerful king Israel, God's people, has ever had. But despite all his wisdom, despite all his accomplishments, despite all his wealth and sensual pleasures, the man had 700 concubines he realized that it was all meaningless, meaningless, all vanity. This man had no restraints. He could do whatever he wanted, whatever his eyes set upon, he could do. He was the best of the best. He had whatever he wanted, and at the end, it was all meaningless. Now, most of us, 99.9% of us, never reach this level. We don't accomplish all we wish. Rather, what we do is we are limited. We are limited by our circumstances. We are limited by our own natural ability. So instead of despair of vain success that we see in Ecclesiastes, we face the frustrations of our natural limitations. This too, our limitations lead to meaningless and our struggles as well. But all of this changes. All of this changes when we seek to look at the world from the perspective of under the sun from the perspective of the kingdom of this fallen world. And we start to look at it with the eyes of faith. We look at it, the world as citizens, not of the kingdom of this world, but of the kingdom of heaven. We define reality with, not with respect to ourselves, with respect to our limited experience, but with respect to God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So let's now look at these three specific aspects of our work that are radically transformed by this shift in perspective from viewing ourselves as citizens of this kingdom to citizens of the kingdom of God. And the three aspects, as I mentioned, are the value of our work, the joy we find in our work, and the significance of our work. So let's start at the value of our work. How do we normally define value? How do we value our work? Well, oftentimes what we do is we look at how much we get paid. If we get paid a lot, it must be value. If we get paid a little, it must not be valuable. This is, this is the way we measure our labor. But is this really the best measure? I remember when I was a kid, my dad would come up to me and my, my two brothers and, and, and say, you know, what do you guys want to be when we grow up? And we didn't know what we wanted to be when we grew up. And we would all say the same thing. I don't care what I do, I just want to make a lot of money. And my dad said, well, then sell drugs. Be a mafia hitman. You make a lot of money. There's a lot of other shady things. And my dad said something that was really wise. He said, making a lot of money is not that hard. 
if that's all you want to do. And that's true. Making a lot of money is not that hard if that's your only goal. You can do it. And there are a lot of ways to make money, and, and many are not illegal, like selling drugs or being a mafia hitman. But just equally is morally reprehensible. Abortion doctors make a lot of money. But even that aside, aside from what we do for our, our job and our vocation, is really only one small part of what we do. How do we measure the value of our hobbies? How do we measure the value of raising a family, helping a neighbor, speaking with a friend, taking a nice walk with our spouse? But if we do all to the glory of God, the value of our work is not influenced by the value assigned by the market or assigned by the opinions of others. The value is the value that is assigned by God himself. And work done to the glory of God has infinite value because it's done to an infinite God, for an infinite God who has infinite value. And this fact, I think, gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to do simple, obscure acts noticed by no one other than God and to know that they have just as much value, perhaps even more value than these big acts that are noticed by everyone, applauded by many. See, in our goal, in our gospel reading today from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructions that he gives here to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for they have no reward from your father who is in heaven. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, that's the way we are to be. The value of our action comes not from the opinion of man, not from the applause of man, but from the opinion of God. And anything done simply to be seen, to be recognized, really has no spiritual value, no eternal value. But anything done for the glory of God, this has infinite value in God's sight. So that's our first perspective. Next, I want to look at the joy that we receive from our work. St. Augustine famously said in his book, The Confessions, that God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. See, we're created to glorify God. And God, and we can only be truly satisfied when we are working towards this purpose for which we are created. And sadly, what we do is sadly, the fall has distorted this purpose. Instead of seeing our purpose to glorify God, we see it to glorify ourselves. And what this has done is this has robbed us of the joy and, and it's filled us with misery. See, if we focus on God, we will we have joy. If we focus on ourselves, we will have misery. Our catechism, I think, recognizes that our duty to glorify God naturally brings about joy. The second part of this is, and enjoy him forever. See, there's one chief end here. It doesn't say, what are the two chief ends? It says, what is the singular chief end of man? And our chief end is to glorify God. And the natural, inescapable result of truly glorifying God is that we will enjoy him while we are glorifying him. And my friends, this is our eternal destiny. We will forever glorify God and we will forever enjoy his awesome, magnificent, almighty God. So whatever we do for the glory of God, no matter how obscure, no matter how ignored, no matter how despised by the elites of this world, if it is done for the glory of God, it will bring us perfect peace and perfect joy and contentment. 
There's a small little book called the, the Practice of the Presence of God. Has anyone ever heard of that book? A few people have heard of it. It was written by a, a, a 17th century Catholic French monk. It was actually composed after his death. It was a guy named Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence was known for his, uh, particularly for his ability to bring every aspect of his life uh, into, the, into God, un, un, into the devotion to God. And he had a job. He worked in the kitchen of this monastery. And mainly what he did was cut potatoes. That was his job. And he was able to basically glorify God while cutting potatoes. He did it to the glory of God. He was filled with perfect joy. He said that it was as if he was worshiping in a cathedral, singing songs to God. That's what he felt like while he was cutting potatoes to God's glory. And and really, this is, I think... This exemplifies, this, this obscure French monk exemplifies what this verse is telling us to do, to be, to be filled with this perfect joy that we have when we do everything for the glory of God. And when we do all for the glory of God, we are, we are set free, set free from the anxiety, set free from the frustration of this fallen world. And we are filled, filled with a perfect joy that we have of the kingdom of heaven. So when we do all for the glory of God, the value of our work is infinite. And the joy we receive in this work is perfect. The last aspect of our work I want to look at is the significance of our work. When we do all for the glory of God, we find that the significance of our work is eternal. So the truth is this world is temporary. Everything that we build, everything that we earn, everything that we acquire in this world will one day fade away. Again, Jesus' words from our gospel reading, he says, do not lay for Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, this world is temporary. It's passing away. But sadly, we invest so much time, so much energy, so much emotion into basically building sands uh, uh, castles of sand, only for the tide to come in and completely wash away all of our endeavors. And I think it's this temporary aspect of our labor that was most distressful to the author of Ecclesiastes. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. In his conclusion, all things are full of weariness. Weariness. The author despairs in the lack of significance of all his labor under the sun in in the kingdom of this world. It's all meaningless. It's all full of weariness. And I think it's this aspect of ultimate significance from which there is no escape in this world. See, as far as the value of our work, we we can look only to the value placed on it by this fallen world for this short life. And we can have an attitude that, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. And this delusion can satisfy us for a short time. We can even find temporary and sensual pleasure in this world. Certainly not the same uh, perfect sinless joy that only God can provide, but for a time this pleasure 
can give us some satisfaction. But there's no getting around. There's no getting around the futility, the despair that is a necessary component of life under the sun, of a life centered solely on, uh, on ourselves and devoid of the divine. And I'm always amazed at how God always works out our Sunday school lessons and our sermons and our songs. And those of you who are here for Sunday school saw Dr. R.C. Sproul saying, basically, if there is no God, the only option really is suicide. He was saying that there is no purpose, there is no meaning in life apart from God. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes found. And that's what so many in our world today, the emptiness. Jack shared with us that the the second most... uh, um, highest cause of death for, for young adults is suicide. And think about it, 18% of people in their 20s commit suicide. It's because of the despair that comes from trying to live in a life without a God. But when we do all things for the glory of God, we're raised beyond the limitations of this fallen world. Our minds are transformed from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. We are then enabled to escape the vanity of vanities. All is vanity of life under the sun. And the significance of our work goes from from the futility of the temporary and the passing impact to an eternal impact that we have when we are doing all for the glory of God. There is an eternal impact. And the most encouraging aspect I find of this command, this command to do all for the glory of God, is that every single Christian no matter our natural abilities, no matter our skills, our gifting, how long we've been walking with the Lord, no matter how much or how little scripture we have memorized, each one of us, each one of us is fully capable of following this command. Each one of us has the ability to shift our thinking to kingdom thinking. Each one of us at this very moment can resolve to do everything for the glory of God. And we will immediately see a change. We will immediately be free from the lack of self-worth that comes with the worldly comparisons of our actions and our abilities to see that there is infinite value in those things that are done for the glory of God. And each one of us can, at this very moment, resolve to do everything for the glory of God. And likewise, we will see an immediate change in our attitude toward our earthly labor. We will be free from the frustration, from the monotony, from the drudgery of even the most routine and humble tasks. And when our work is done for the glory of God, we will experience the perfect joy, the perfect contentment of the Lord in that work. Even if we are cutting potatoes or changing diapers to the glory of God, we will find perfect joy in that. My friends, each one of us at this very moment can resolve to do everything for the glory of God. And then we will see the eternal significance of everything we do. We will see that the eternal opportunities that exist all around us every single day. We will no longer look to what is profitable for this moment, but we will recognize, we will rejoice about the impact that we can have on souls, an eternal impact on both their path that that God gives to us today, both today and for all eternity. So brothers and sisters, whether we eat or whether we drink, we should do all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to glorify you. We want to do all to the glory. And I pray, Father, that you will change our hearts, change our minds as we look at all of our labor, not to see anything as mundane as beneath us, but to see that even the most simple task, even giving a glass of water 
in your name is going to have infinite value, infinite, bring us infinite joy and have infinite significance. So, Father, we pray, I pray, Lord, that you will give each one of us that change in attitude, that change in heart, that we will look at everything we will do, we will do for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.